This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include Mature Themes. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 263. Hello, listeners. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also give you the latest news on my writing endeavors. More on that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 4 of my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Daniel Shirabi is a telepath with a problem. The Psy Collective assesses the power level of all of its members when they reach adulthood, and assigns them privileges based on their relative abilities. Daniel's powers are so weak that the Collective judged him unfit to sire children, and excluded him from the polyamorous breeding cells that are the central unit of collective life. Daniel tried to improve his status during his four years at university, but after graduation, he still wasn't powerful enough to make the cut, so he was assigned to a bachelor cell with other low-powered males. His girlfriend, Rebecca, was placed in a breeding cell with some of their mutual friends from high school. In the intervening years, Daniel has become the regular sparring partner for Victor Hincavos, the Metamore Hive liaison for the Empire's military intelligence directorate. Victor is in a similarly frustrating position. While his telekinetic powers make him a valuable source of genetic material, so far none of the Hive's breeding cells have been willing to accept him as a member. Victor blames this on the violent and bloody work he had to do for MID, which has given him a collection of memories that softer telepaths find distasteful. After their workout, Daniel and Victor went to check on Westfall's younger recruits, who were running through their self-defense classes. Daniel met Victor's most gifted protege, a powerful telepath named Abby. While they watched, Abby formed a gestalt with the other teenagers in her class, leading them through a set of drills in perfect unison. Even more impressive, the other students were able to exactly replicate the drill even after the gestalt had ended. Abby was able to imprint her own non-psionic talents onto another mind, a mark of how powerful she is. As they continued their discussion in private, Daniel realized something else about Victor and Abby. Victor is grooming her, preparing her to eventually be his mate. Abby's children will be the strongest size in the entire hive, and Victor intends to make sure those children are his. This made Daniel deeply uneasy, but Victor was unrepentant. 
The elders have been stringing him along for fifteen years, using his hope for a breeding cell to keep him compliant and doing their dirty work. Victor is sick of their manipulation and empty promises, so now he's making plans for his own future. He told Daniel, If you want to make something out of your life, if you ever want to amount to more than what you are right now, then sooner or later you're going to have to go outside the lines the hive has drawn for you. When you're ready to do that, you give me a call. Making the Cut A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 4 Victor's words lingered in Daniel's head as he rode the Crosstown shuttle back to his apartment. He sat at the back of the large skimmer bus, staring out the window at the endless streams of traffic and the enormous buildings stretching out of sight both above and below him. A couple of young women on the bus had noticed him, and were now whispering to each other and giggling, but he barely registered their presence. He knew he was good-looking. As the captain of the Westfall Warriors, he had been the object of women's attention through much of high school. It hadn't done him any good in the end. In the Psy Collective, it didn't matter how good-looking you were if you didn't have the power level to earn people's respect. Besides, there was only one woman whose opinion he cared about. Sooner or later, you're going to have to go outside the lines. What had Victor meant by that? If he was talking about an affair, then he didn't understand Daniel's desires at all. Daniel wasn't about to jeopardize Rebecca's current family life by trying to continue their sexual relationship on the side. It would be hurtful to Brian, and Rebecca wouldn't do it in any case. The breeding cells were polyamorous by design, but there were limits to what was acceptable or appropriate. But somehow, Daniel didn't think Victor was that clueless. Taken in context, he seemed to be talking about getting out of the bachelor cells that the collective had established as a place to put its surplus males. But leaving the cells also meant leaving behind active participation in collective society. That wasn't something that could be done lightly. The Psy Collective was, of course, collectivist in nature, from each according to his means, to each according to his needs. It only worked because the Hive's telepathic communion allowed it to make decisions as a unified entity. Everyone cared for his neighbor as himself because, in a very real way, his neighbor was himself. Those spookies who chose to live outside the Collective had to learn how to function in a capitalist society. For someone like Daniel, who had been born in a breeding cell and raised in the creche, making the transition to independence wouldn't be easy. For one thing, he'd need a lot of money to pay off what the Hive had invested in him. Had Victor found a way to make that kind of money? He had worked for the government for 15 years, so it wouldn't be surprising if he had connections to people with deep pockets. But if so, why mention it to Daniel? Was it something he couldn't do on his own? The skimmer bus pulled to a stop at the end of Daniel's block, 
and he collected his briefcase and gym bag and got out. His bachelor cell's apartment was in a middle-class residential neighborhood on the second level of the eastern central borough. Row houses with fascia of brick and mortar sat in the shadow of the super skyscrapers behind them. Most of the houses had garden boxes and potted trees out front, and well-maintained sidewalks provided about a meter's worth of distance from the busy traffic of the skyway. Daniel turned down an alley that ran between two blocks of row houses and into the interior of the massive tower, which held shopping districts and offices, in addition to residential suites like the one he shared with his cell. Daniel opened the door of the flat and was met by the sound of aggressively cheerful girl-pop music, which drifted into the front room from one of the bedrooms off to his left. Apparently, Nathan was home. Daniel turned to the smoke detector in the kitchen and waved, knowing that it contained a hidden security camera that his flatmate would be watching. "'Hey, Big D,' Nathan called. "'Hey, Nate,' Daniel said, setting down his bag and briefcase. He went past the kitchen and living room and down the short corridor to the bedrooms. Nathan's bedroom was on the right, and Daniel poked his head inside." The room was a shrine to technological brilliance and atrocious musical taste. Shelves lining three walls were crammed with computers, monitors, surround sound speakers, spelljack equipment, and dozens of bits of electronic wizardry that Daniel understood only in the most general terms, if at all. Piles of comic books and SF thrillers sat in nooks and crannies beside technical manuals, scholarly journals, and graduate-level textbooks. A narrow bed was wedged inside the walk-in closet, the covers mussed and strewn with bits of laundry. Every remaining bit of space on the walls and ceiling was covered with photographs and posters of attractive young women— most of them teenage starlets who had been given record deals more for their appearance than for any actual musical talent. A six-decimeter-high bronze bust of Tiffany Angel sat in a place of honor on the desk directly opposite the door, looking for all the world like the idol of a household goddess, which, in a sense, it was. For the hundredth time, Daniel wondered how long Nathan had saved his discretionary allowance— to be able to afford the ridiculous thing. Nathan spun his chair around and looked up at Daniel. He was a spindly little man, only 160 centimeters tall and 45 kilos soaking wet. His thick mop of black hair and prominent nose pointed to his Yehudi ancestry, while his thick black-rimmed glasses revealed his nearsightedness. He grinned at Daniel amiably. So, did you beat him today? he asked. A few times. Victor's still better than me, but I can do enough to give him a workout. He still thinks I'm too soft, though. Nathan snorted. Military types. To the ninth with all of them. You know that this whole PSYOP program is just a way for Big Mama to inject sleeper memes into the minds of collective personnel. One of these days, she's gonna flip a switch, and bam! He smacked a fist into his open hand. A whole army of stone-cold psychic killers ready to do our bidding. Sure, Daniel said, resisting the urge to roll his eyes. Somehow he doubted that Majestrix Kaya was planning to take over the Psy Collective, but this wasn't the weirdest idea that Nathan had espoused over the years. I'm serious, man, Nathan said, 
Take a look at the way the collective is set up. The whole thing is vulnerable to toxic meme infection. Why do you think the elders are so paranoid about trying to rehabilitate size who go crazy? You get a strong enough personality into a gestalt and the other minds will be subverted by the stronger paradigm, irrespective of whether its viewpoint is adaptive. Ask me why. Why? Because, Nathan said, waving a hand for emphasis, it doesn't matter if something is true as long as enough of the gestalt believes it is true. That's the ugly little reality of the collective, Big D. They want you to think that the Hive's decisions are all made rationally, but you can't get a rational product from irrational components. He gestured at one of the computers. Garbage in, garbage out. Daniel crossed his arms and leaned against the doorway. So let me ask you this. If the collective is so fragile and irrational, why are we still here? How did we build a society that takes better care of its people than anyone else in history? Nathan cocked his head and raised an eyebrow. Gee, I don't know. Why don't you tell me, Mr. My Girlfriend Left Me Because I Was Too Weak to Be Useful? Daniel narrowed his eyes at Nathan. His hands shifted to his hips and balled up into fists. That's over the line, Nathan. He tried to keep it soft and even, but the words came out harsh and half-strangled. For a few heartbeats, the tension in the air felt as heavy and dangerous as a meter of sharpened steel. Then Nathan visibly shrank in his seat, head bowing. Sorry, Dee, he said, his face reddening. Daniel took a deep breath and let it out, forcing himself to tone down his body language. Forget it, he said. Is Kevin here? After the pounding Victor gave me, I could use a massage. Nathan gestured at one of the security monitors, which showed a closed door at the end of the corridor to the right of the entry room. He's with a client right now, but her hour's almost up. Shouldn't be more than a minute or two. Daniel grunted an acknowledgement and went back to the kitchen. After rooting around in the refrigerator for a minute, he pulled out a beer and a carton of leftover honey's stir-fry, which he ate cold. He was just wadding up the empty container and putting it in the trash compactor when the door to Kevin's sanctum opened. The auburn-haired South Morin came out a moment later, accompanied by a beautiful and athletic woman, with short black hair and skin the color of teak. Kevin escorted her to the front door and held it open for her. Thank you again, Kevin, she said, standing on tiptoe to kiss his cheek. I'll be making another appointment soon. You are amazing. Kevin smiled at her, his eyes gentle and kind, even as he carefully avoided any show of affection in response to the kiss. You're too kind, Denise. Be careful with that shoulder now, and don't forget the exercises I showed you. I won't. Good night, Kevin. She left, and Kevin locked the door behind her. He let out a long sigh. Let me guess, Daniel said. Another one asked you about your full-service plan. Kevin gave him a pained look. Can someone please explain to me why the words not a licensed sensualist are so difficult to understand? Do I need to use a larger font size on my advertisements? Daniel shrugged. People see what they expect to see. And most massage therapists do work for the guild. You're good-looking, and the ladies like the way you make them feel. It's not surprising that they'd ask. Even if you aren't licensed to do it for money, you might still do it for free. 
The thing is, most of them know I'm gay, Kevin grumbled as he pulled out a beer of his own from the fridge and opened it. I've never made any secret of it. Hells, I have Stephen's picture out where they can all see it. Daniel smirked. And how many men do you know who've interpreted lesbian as potentially bisexual under the right circumstances? Kevin paused, the bottle halfway to his lips. Okay, good point, he said. Daniel nodded once and smiled. You up to doing a little heat treatment? Victor worked me over pretty hard today. Not a problem. Give me a few minutes to grab some dinner and I'll meet you in the sanctum. While it wasn't as lavishly appointed as a massage sanctum in a guild-licensed parlor, the room where Kevin met his clients was designed to promote the same feelings of peace and security. Smooth, curved walls surrounded the room in an oval shape, and the intervening space between them and the adjacent rooms was packed with sound-absorbing insulation. The walls were painted a soft, warm yellow, and indirect light sources, hidden discreetly around the room, made it seem as if the entire surface of the walls were glowing. A few large potted plants stood at the far end of the room, concealing a stereo system that filled the sanctum with the sounds of rainfall, babbling streams, and the thoughtful melodies of a wooden flute. A narrow shelf ran along the wall opposite the door, holding massage oils, a box of tissues, a couple of framed photographs, and a pitcher of water next to a stack of paper cups. The center of the room was taken up by a fully adjustable massage table, as comfortable as any you might find in a sensualist parlor. A single wicker chair and a small chest full of more specialized tools were the only other items in the room. Daniel drank a cup of water to cleanse his palate, then took off his clothes and lay face down on the table under two layers of sheets. Kevin knocked on the door a short time later. Ready, Daniel said. He didn't bother to look up when Kevin came in. So, what hurts? Kevin asked, as he folded back the covers to expose Daniel's back. Daniel smirked, though he knew Kevin couldn't see it. What doesn't? All right, Kevin said. He drizzled massage oil into his hands and began spreading it over Daniel's back in a smooth, even layer. The scent of sandalwood filled the room, and Daniel closed his eyes and breathed deeply. What hurts the most? My ribs, my shoulders, and my sense of self-worth. Daniel had meant it as a joke, but Kevin didn't laugh. He began working his way over the major muscle groups, applying moderate pressure and following whatever procedures the school had taught him during his training. Daniel didn't understand much of the theory behind it, just that it worked. As he gradually increased the pressure, Kevin's hands grew warm against Daniel's skin, a manifestation of his mild pyrokinetic ability. The heat worked its way into the sore, tired muscles, soothing them and helping them to relax. It sounds like there's a story there, Kevin said, after a few minutes of silence. Hmm? Daniel asked. Kevin's touch was so soothing that he had nearly fallen asleep on the table. About your self-worth, Kevin said. Daniel let out a non-committal grunt, which turned into a quiet moan as Kevin started working loose a nasty knot in his neck muscles. 
He lay there in silence for a couple of minutes while Kevin gently pushed and pulled the knot, coaxing the muscle fibers into disengaging from each other. Eventually, the pain and tightness eased, and Kevin worked his way down to another set of muscles in his lower back. I don't know, Daniel said at last, looking down through the hole in the head brace to stare at the carpeting. I guess I'm feeling conflicted. Victor said some stuff today that bothered me, and it's been hanging over my head ever since. Like what? Daniel normally would have shrugged, but his body was so content to just lie there that he didn't bother to try. That I'm soft? That the hive is going to use me as long as it can, and it doesn't really care about my happiness? That I'm going to be stuck here in this bachelor cell for the rest of my life, unless I do something to change things? Such a positive, inspiring fellow. He should have been a teacher. Daniel snorted, but he didn't stay amused for long. The thing is, he said, after a moment, that I'm not sure he's wrong. I mean, it's pretty obvious that the Hive doesn't think I'm all that valuable. Hmm. Kevin pulled the sheets up over Daniel's back, then folded back the lower end of the sheets on one side and began working on Daniel's leg. Daniel fell quiet again for a while and let him work, replaying the earlier conversation with Victor in his mind. "'Can I ask you something?' he said after a while. "'Hm. Why do you stay in the Collective? I mean, you don't have any telepathy, your pyro talent's just strong enough to help you in your job, and you're not attracted to women. You're probably the only person that the Hive has less use for than me.' Kevin chuckled, a warm and gentle sound. You may be right about that, but I enjoy the camaraderie, not to mention the health care benefits and the guarantee of a roof over my head. If I wanted anything close to that kind of security on the outside, I'd probably have to join the guild. As much as I can respect what they do, having sex for money doesn't really appeal to me. Daniel heard a smile creep into his voice. I guess I'm too picky. (laughs) Maybe. Kevin finished working on Daniel's right leg and moved to his left before Daniel spoke up again. Do you think he's right? That the hive will just keep using me until there's nothing left or until I get out? The redhead was silent for a moment, apparently weighing his words. I think that you should ask yourself what you want to get out of life and what you're willing to do for it. For me, it wasn't worth it to go solo, because I'm fairly happy where I am. For you, what you really want is a family, and realistically, you're not going to get that if you stay where you are now. What you need to ask yourself is what's more important to you, starting a family of your own or keeping the safety and security you have right now. You could work your butt off for a few years to raise some capital, work out a plan with the elders to pay off your student loans, and then go out there and make a life for yourself. There are any number of low-powered teeps out there who wouldn't mind marrying a guy like you and settling down. You could do it, but it would involve some risks and uncertainty, and a lot of hard work. On the other hand, you could stay here, play it safe, and try to find a way to be happy with the situation you're in. Is that what you think I should do? I'm not recommending one way or the other, Kevin said. It's your life, Daniel. There's no shame in deciding either way, 
but you have to be the one to make the choice. Ask yourself, what matters to you? What do you really want? Rebecca, Daniel said, without hesitation. There was a long moment of silence. Kevin slowly lowered Daniel's leg to rest on the table. I meant besides her, he said softly. Daniel let out a ragged sigh, the familiar pain harsh and burning in his chest. Yeah, I know. He paused. If I did all those things you mentioned, if I built a life for myself outside the collective, you don't think she'd join me? Kevin put a gentle hand on Daniel's shoulder. It's not my place to say. I know she's happy in the life she has now. Whether she would leave that to be with you... Well, I guess that depends on what she wants most out of life. Daniel nodded thoughtfully. You feel all right now, physically? Kevin asked. Daniel shifted his muscles experimentally. Yeah, I think I'm good now. Thanks, Kevin. For the massage and for the talk. Anytime, Kevin said, patting his shoulder. I'll go out and let you get dressed. Don't forget to drink at least a full liter of water before bed, or you'll be sore than anything tomorrow. Got it. Thanks again. Kevin shut the door behind him, and Daniel slowly gathered his clothes and put them back on. His thoughts were still a muddle, but Kevin's advice had helped, and a picture was gradually taking shape. What do I really want? he asked himself. And how badly do I want it? He had some thinking to do. He would be meeting Victor again for sparring practice on Tuesday, and he intended to have an answer for him. And that's the end of Chapter 4. Come back next time, when Victor introduces Daniel to some rather disreputable new friends. Lauren Groff said, In the end, fiction is the craft of telling truth through lies. So, let's see what truths I've crafted this week. It's time for the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of November 14th through November 20th. I wrote 2,811 words this week over the course of 4.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 625 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 217 days without breaking my chain. This week I didn't get as much writing done as I have been recently. I started an important new project at work, and it's meant some long hours and late nights at the office, with less time for writing during my lunch breaks. It also took me kind of a long time to edit last week's episode, so I didn't get any writing done over the weekend. I'm now at that point in the romance beat sheet that everyone knows is coming, and everyone dreads. The crisis. This is the point where external forces have triggered the characters' fears about their relationship. They retreat behind their masks, the roles that society and culture have conditioned them to accept. They are driven apart, separated, and distraught. It feels as if the world is falling apart around them. The relationship cannot succeed unless our protagonists push past their fears 
and become the people they could be. This is a crucial moment in the story, but that doesn't make it any easier to write. I've really been enjoying my time with Honor and Natasha, and after 264 pages of mostly warm fuzzies, it feels awful to put them through the ringer like this. I just have to keep moving forward, knowing that these dark times will not last forever, and that a happy ending is waiting on the other side. I'm now in chapter 31, and the manuscript is over 82,000 words. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a new patron this week. Say hello to John. If you like this show and want to help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the very best way to support me. Roughly 91% of what you donate goes directly to me, and helps pay for things like web hosting, podcast distribution, printing costs, cover designs, and paying my Metamore City artists. If you donate at least $3 a month, you'll get access to the first draft of Honor Bound while I'm writing it, roughly a chapter a week. Higher donations can get you other cool perks, like advanced copies of ebooks, complimentary audiobooks, signed paperbacks, and even one-on-one coaching on your writing. Plus, all of my patrons get access to exclusive Metamore City artwork, including an annual holiday card that you can't get anywhere else. To get started, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Take a look at the donation tiers and choose the one that's right for you. You can donate monthly or buy a year's membership in advance and get one month for free. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much. I couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.